0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Joining us now for one in our series of conversations with leading national security strategists and thinkers is Dr. Harlan Ullman, a retired United States Navy captain, commentator, and chairman of the Killowan Group Consultancy. He's a graduate of the United States Naval Academy, a surface warfare officer who served an exchange tour with the Royal Navy, commanded a swift boat during the Vietnam War, earned a PhD from the Fletcher School in 20 months, commanded USS DuPont, and has been a leading strategist and thinker for decades. A prolific author, Harlan has written 10 books with two more in the works. The Fifth Horseman will be out later this year, and The Sixth Domain uh, will be published next year. He's been a strategic advisor to governments worldwide, including Afghanistan and Pakistan, and has long-advised NATO's Supreme Allied Commanders, uh, plural, This conversation is sponsored by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems and devoted to the memory of one of the nation's greatest national security strategists, Andy Marshall, the former director of the Pentagon's Office of Net Assessment. Harlan, an honor and pleasure having you on in a conversation that's uh, been long overdue. Thanks for joining us.
1: My pleasure, Bago.
0: And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. FinContieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage, and General Motors Defense sponsors our coverage of strategy. Uh, Harlan, uh, you know, not uh, to uh, to start this off on on a on a down note, but. Uh, You and I, for for many, many years now, have been discussing uh, the Iraq and Afghanistan uh, wars. Uh, Obviously, the United States now withdrawing from Afghanistan, drawing a lot of parallels to what happened with the abrupt U.S. withdrawal uh, from Vietnam. Our our mutual friend, Arno de Borgrav, was writing about this happening uh, many, many years ago, that Afghanistan's end would be very similar to Vietnam's, that once the support eroded the, the departure would be abrupt and, and then it would have repercussions. Um, and and obviously, as the United States has withdrawn its uh, support, Kabul is actually crumbling faster than uh, Saigon did. The United States expended $2 trillion, lost 2,400 military lives, an additional 1,700 American military contractors, 20,000 uh, wounded. Our allies have also uh, and partners have played uh, a terrible cost, as have the Afghan people and the Afghan government. Um, after two decades of this, what are the lessons learned and what do we have to show for this investment ultimately? Because there are many people who maintain, well, it was necessary to do this mission because of 9-11, but there are others who maintain that there were a multiplicity of other ways to try to accomplish this mission. Uh, obviously, hindsight's 2020. From your standpoint, what are the lessons and what do we have to show for it after 20 years of blood and treasure?
1: The only lesson we have learned, (laughs) Vago, is that we will learn no lesson. After Vietnam, it was absolutely clear that we had no understanding what we're getting into, that unfortunately our our presidents were politicians, not strategists. Our strategy was to win by killing our way to victory. And the North Vietnamese strategy was to win by not losing. And many of these things were repeated in Afghanistan. Uh, The reasons why we lost are self-evident. And I really wonder if the Americans have really learned a way of war that's successful. We managed to win virtually every battle and have done so since the Korean War. But every war we have started, we've lost. And in many instances, when we use military force, it did not work out. So what I draw is that no matter the lessons, we don't seem to learn them in future generations.
0: Um, what do you think, you know, you, you mentioned it, and I, I can't commend highly enough your book, uh, anatomy of failure, why America loses every war it starts and you, know, you make powerfully the case that we win all the battles but we lose all the wars uh ultimately what's what's the flawed strategic approach here right because uh, after it happens enough time, you just have to take some time and go to the forest and unplug your cell phone and do some deep thinking right from your standpoint, where does this thinking Need to take us in, in a world that is is changing fast, and will include everything from great power competition to these kinds of stabilization missions in the future. What's the right way to be? My thinking sense about is, where we're Lago,
1: going. that we have a system of government that is no longer conducive to winning wars. As I said earlier, presidents are politicians, obviously, and they are not strategists. Uh, from Vietnam, with Jack Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson. Uh, onwards to Afghanistan and Iraq, especially uh, since Bill Clinton became president, uh, our presidents lacked experience. Clinton, Bush, Obama, and certainly Donald Trump lacked the experience to understand. And understanding and knowledge and learning of the other side is perhaps our most tragic shortcoming. We also tend to base strategy on aspirations, on ideology, will pay any price, bear any burden, as Kennedy famously said. Uh, And we have a decision-making process that is far too complex and indeed does not necessarily provide the president with the right options. And there are very, very few no men or jokers, so to speak, who will say to the president, this is wrong. And so we have a system which does not challenge sufficiently all the assumptions on which we decide to make decisions to go to force, use force. And this applies as much to Grenada in 1983 as it was to going into Afghanistan in 2001 or Iraq two years later
0: to listen to what you're saying, right? The last uh, strategist to be president was Dwight Eisenhower. Well, um, oh, I would
1: say, actually, I would say, Richard, I would say Richard Nixon and I would say George H.W. Bush.
0: Okay, um, that, that, that's true, right? Uh, folks uh, uh, who um, at least knew how government worked, obviously our current president, uh, Joe Biden is more in the mold of somebody who does understand how government uh, works. With all of what we know, Right. I mean, there is a tendency of thinking of the Afghanistan war as uh, starting in 2001, but it actually really sort of happened and then sort of ticked over. Well,
1: 1980, when when, when Zbigniew Brzezinski recommended to Jimmy Carter, let's support the Mujahideen.
0: uh, Correct. But what I was saying is that in this latest iteration of it, there's a tendency of thinking about it from 2001, but actually the real surge and the real drive to do it right sort of started nine, eight, nine years into the war, right, with, with uh, the Afghanistan stir, surge of uh, 2010, 2009, 2010. Um, and Ben Wallace, uh, when he met with reporters, the British Defense Secretary, the very thoughtful and strategically minded Defense Secretary, I might add, you know, was talking about the lessons and that simply may not, the 20 years may not have been enough time to do the complexity of the mission uh, re- required from, from your standpoint is withdrawing the right decision, ultimately,
1: that, well, or you, do we, should we have, should we have done something else? I first went to Afghanistan about 2002. And in 2004, I wrote a piece uh, in a study that was done for the Atlantic council that began, make no mistake, NATO is losing in Afghanistan. It was self-evident in 2008. One of my columns was nine reasons why we will lose in Afghanistan. And if you went to Afghanistan, it was very simple. We had no strategy. We had shifted from a mission of of, um, either capturing or killing Bin Laden to nation building. And our whole organization was irrational. We based much on so-called provisional reconstruction teams but none of them were recorded or or indeed integrated. Uh, We didn't, we're not able to rebuild the irrigation system in Afghanistan, which at one stage when it was built originally by the uh, Romans, more than 2,000 years ago, was one of the best in the world. Uh, And unfortunately, we had absolutely no way of integrating things. I mean, the amount of stupid things we did and all this was being reported by Seagar, as you know, the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, was reporting on a monthly basis all these mistakes and errors. And yet nobody was prepared to take them on directly. And so we had a lack of coherence. We had a lack of leadership. We had a lack of unity. Uh, we had the wrong mission and of course we had diverted to Iraq going after weapons of mass destruction which we should have known did not exist. But again, this was a lack of understanding on the part of the Bush administration and ideology on the part of George W. Bush that we were going to change the geostrategic landscape of the greater Middle East by imposing democracy on Iraq and that soon would spread. It did spread but it wasn't democracy and the region has been in chaos and we are the ones who caused that to happen. As I said, because we lacked sufficient knowledge and understanding of what was happening in the region, and thought that the superiority of American military force was capable of resolving all problems, which it certainly is not.
0: Uh, one of the great uh, tragedies of this, and in fact, you and I were uh, at a at a dinner, if you recall, with the Pakistani ambassador. Um, now, you know, ar- around that period, uh, and I remember uh, that being a a very sobering. Um, discussion uh, even then, right, uh, about how this was likely to go. And we have this idea that we can do these things quickly, right? I mean, that was one of the predicates of this. And then, you know, we we, we don't, you know, we do the heavy lift, we get rid of the threat, and then everybody else does the rebuilding. And then you turn around and look and, and nobody's doing the rebuilding or the rebuilding job may be bigger than anything that we uh, anticipated. All of that, though, is this decision- the right decision to withdraw, because there are those who are now not only resus- resuscitating Vietnam, but Iraq, Afghanistan, and China and Russia both are saying, uh, right? I mean, Putin has flat out and come and said this. Look what, look how we behaved with Bashar Al Assad. We kept him in power. We stick with our friends. Look at how the Americans uh, treat. You know, nothing but wreckage in their wake. Xi Jinping is making similar observations. I mean, what's sort of the last thing, strategic damage this does to America's brand? Or is it, hey, we're just going to hit the reset button and kind of go on and everybody understands that it was time for us to get out, right? Is it? Was first, this the right decision first, first, and what's the aftermath of it?
1: First, Vietnam had no strategic consequences other than the ones domestically that we lost. Uh, Afghanistan is, is, is somewhat more complicated. First, uh, President Biden had two extremely bad choices. He could have stayed, obviously, with a small presence, but the war would have persisted. Whether it would have made any difference over the long term is unknowable, or he could have gone. He chose to leave. However, the big mistake that I believe the administration made, you talk about lessons learned, is the same mistake that George W. Bush made in Iraq. Nobody asked what's next. And I don't believe that the administration did sufficient planning to be able to accommodate a sensible withdrawal for several reasons. First, if we do not accommodate and protect and save those Afghans who are translators, but who supported us and leave people behind, then the whole Afghan episode will be a catastrophe morally because we will have let people down and my guess is we will. Second, we didn't seem to understand that the Afghan military and security forces require 18,000 or so contractors Everything from intelligence to fixing airplanes to providing virtually everything that the Afghans need, they're coming home. And so we haven't thought this thing through. My sense is that this is gonna be more, be more likely to be a disaster. But as I said, there were two difficult decisions to be made. And I think I would only fault for the time being, the Biden administration, if it turns out to be true, that they didn't plan adequately, adequately for all the predictable things that will happen as we have withdrawn our forces.
0: Being uh, a great strategist means being great, uh, a great historian. Uh, and Harlan, as you pointed out, the United States has been good at strategy, uh, sometimes very good at strategy, and very thoughtful and very long-term in its approach. Maybe uh, you know, but obviously a skill set that has eroded. From your standpoint, what is it we need to do? Education. I mean, what 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 do we as a nation need to do because we were So superior to all of our adversaries and challenges, challengers, that we could afford to sort of screw up. We had the riches. We had the world's largest economy. We had uh, a technological lead over allies and adversaries. Those leads have diminished, uh, and the dynamic is a completely different dynamic. Indeed, it increasingly seems like we're preparing for wars. In ways that our adversaries will not fight. We're preparing for wars the way we want to fight them, but maybe not how our adversaries are going to fight. How do? We, what are the things that we need to do as a nation? And we can get to the war fighting question in a moment, but to regain that strategic approach that we seem to have forgotten, except in occasional salons that you and I find ourselves in, where people are talking about it, and we we nod and we go, wow, that was really thoughtful. And then we go on and do stupid crap.
1: I think, Vago, that you give too much credit to American strategy. Uh, World War II, the reasons we won World War II were several fold. Winston Churchill and Britain held on The Soviet Union exacted unbelievable casualties on the Germans, and we built the arsenal of democracy. Remember, we started World War II with eight aircraft carriers and about 350 ships and ended with almost 100 aircraft carriers of all sizes and nearly 6,000 ships. So in essence, we buried the enemy because of our economic might. We had two oceans to protect us, and that gave us a lot of flexibility. You can argue that obviously the containment strategy worked, but, My sense is that uh, we could have dealt with with the Soviet Union much more quickly if Kennedy had not made the mistake of forcing Khrushchev to send missiles into Cuba in 1962 to prevent the Americans from having a huge superiority in nuclear forces, which we did not appreciate. Um, But the Soviet Union collapsed not so much because of containment, but because of uh, irrationalities of its political system. I'm not sure we can do anything except um, to be attacked first, and then to gird our lines and, so, and, and then respond. But for example, after September 11th, which should have rallied the nation much as Pearl Harbor did, it really didn't. You know, we were provoked into going into Afghanistan, then Iraq. And in a sense, the same thing is happening right now with cyber, it's happening with COVID. We're fighting a war against uh, disease and against a virus, but we can't even vaccinate uh, all of our people. In 1947, when I was a very young child, polio was the scourge, and it would be hard to remember any parent that wouldn't kill for having their child inoculated against polio. To make a further point, in 1947, smallpox was raised as an issue in New York City when one person was infected and died of it. In May of 1947, believe it or not, 6.8 million New Yorkers were vaccinated in 30 days against smallpox, and the the epidemic just stopped. That's virtually 95% of the people living in New York. I don't know that our political system allows us today to have the unity and coherence. We also aren't able necessarily to debate the basic assumptions for which we're gonna use military force. For example, withdrawing in Afghanistan, what were the basic assumptions that the Biden administration has made? And has anybody challenged them or red teamed them? I don't know the answer to that, but I would say one of the great weaknesses is that we allow ideology or aspirations to dominate what becomes strategy. From strategy to make it work, and this was the centerpiece of shock and awe, which was not the shock and awe in the the Iraqi freedom operation. Shock and awe was to defeat the enemy without firing a shot or to do so with minimum force by affecting, influencing, and controlling will and perception. And the way you do that is to find the outcome that you want the enemy to do the things that you want to do or stop doing things that you do not Then work backwards to be able to put in place the plans, the activities, and the strategy to get there. We don't do that. We start with the aims and then hope that the aims drive the strategy. We also have substituted technology for strategy that we come up with some marvelous technology that's gonna do A, B or C and therefore that becomes a surrogate for strategy. So we don't think in first principles and our whole political system is such that we don't have the luxury of sufficient time uh, to take care, to analyze. And of course, no matter what we do, it's gonna be criticized by huge numbers of people It's also difficult to get the right people into government. One of the issues about the Biden administration, but this is true of most administrations, they have a lot of very, very experienced, competent people. But most of those people are experienced in policy. They're terrific in writing policy, but they're not necessarily that good in operational matters, such as getting things done or in management. In the Department of Defense, for example, even though it's been very difficult to get people confirmed how many people have really run big projects and big programs? And so that becomes another issue. It seems to me that ironically, as the Soviet Union imploded because of the irrationality of the system, uh, we suffer from the same constraints here. And now that we've become even more politicized and polarized, it becomes increasingly difficult to get anything right because no matter what one side says, the other side is going to object dramatically and it's going to be a 50 and a half percent versus 49 and a half percent agreement or disagreement on every issue. So the inability to get consensus, to rally political support, and indeed to have presidents act as much as strategists as, than as politicians seems to me to be constraints. And so I conclude from that, let us be very careful when we decide to use force. Let us be very careful before we make certain countries enemies and adversaries when indeed we may be misperceiving that and we don't necessarily understand what's driving, in this case, China or Russia. I have a column that's going to come out in which I argue that Putin is going to do something in Ukraine this fall. And the reason I can say that, he's told us, Putin has laid out, going back to his 2000 millennium speech over New Year's, where Russia is heading. at the Munich Security Conference in 2007, he telegraphed that Russia was going to become far more hostile to us at Bucharest in 2008, when George W. Bush gratuitously extended NATO membership to Georgia and Ukraine, Putin said this will not stand. And several months later, he set up a trap in South Ossetia that President Saakashvili of Georgia fell into. And so right now, Georgia has got contested borders and is not eligible for membership in NATO. And I think we're going to see the same thing happen in Ukraine. We have to understand what is driving the other side and we have to realize that not everybody thinks like us and that everybody is as smart as us, that they have their own interests and we have to be able to perceive what those interests are. And we don't do a very good job. And quite frankly, for a very long time, we didn't do a good job, which partly explains what happened in Vietnam, what happened in Afghanistan, what's happening in Iraq.
0: To your point about Putin, uh, couldn't agree with you more, right? I mean, he wrote uh, what some can uh, look at as as a rambling and long essay, but effectively uh, made the case why Ukraine is important. And and Putin uh, is is just like Soviet leaders, you know, and almost Leninist, in that you do whatever needs to be done, no matter the consequences. Right. So he is putting out a marker that this is. I don't, well, I don't is,
1: agree with that. No, no. I, he's very pragmatic and cautious. But the 5000 uh, word essay that came out, you have to read it. Because historically, it's accurate going back 400 B.C., I think, uh, to uh, ancient times. And it's very passionate. It's very emotional. It's very spiritual. It's very political. And he lays out his case and basically ends by saying, some people will see this as hostile, but people will read this and take note. And Uh, I think this this is a definitive warning. And I doubt very, very many, very Americans in in the administration have read it. And I don't think that NATO and the West is taking preventive action right now, just in the event that something untoward happens.
0: I'm, I'm agreeing with you. There are the, some who are dismissing it and they should not because it is a very telling and important piece uh, of work. And I agree with you. Right. He, he is laying out a historical case uh, for uh, for for his argument. To your broader point about how we've sort of bungled our way through this. Um, right. I, I'm maybe giving a little bit too much credit uh, for for where we got because circumstance matters. uh and, and certainly industrial capability and wealth has paved over a lot of our uh, defects and, and indeed fueled uh, our, our hubris, right? H.R. McMaster uh, joined us some months ago and, and made uh, you know, a very, very thoughtful case on, on strategic yeah. hubris being a, a recurrent theme in American uh, strategy. So how do we need to think about Russia and China, Harlan? And how do we counter them if we are effectively the strategic bungler that doesn't really have the margin of error that we once had?
1: Well, there are a number of things we have to do. And I think the president made a good start in his meeting with Vladimir Putin, which I think was very successful, in large part because the last thing that Putin said in his press conference was that optimism is always on the horizon. Now, having been a student of Russia and Russian, that is a very Russian thing to say. And I interpret it to mean that Putin would like to see some kind of a deal. So the first thing I would do would be to eliminate the tariffs with China. to so cut back on this notion that they're adversaries. I would dump the national defense strategy which I think is entirely wrong, unaffordable, unexecutable and has no off ramp. The notion that we're going to compete, deter and then defeat if war comes China and Russia is nonsensical because we haven't defined what each of those things mean. And now if you read some media reports, the notion is the new strategy in the Pentagon, and I don't know this to be true, is not to get into a war with Russia. We don't want to identify enemies. Colin Powell made this point many, many, many times, and he's right. We have conflicting interests. All right, let's take those interests. We should have had a longer time to negotiate with Putin because we have certain things in common, such as strategic stability, arms control, terrorism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There needs to be a meeting with President Xi and President Biden to lay out the issues. Look, China, one of the things we don't do, Vago, is we don't look at the weaknesses of each of these countries. We exaggerate their strengths. We did this consistently during the Cold War. Look at China. It's got a population that's aging. It has probably 100,000 riots a year. It has unbelievable debt. One of the reasons why the party is trying to exert control is because every single leader of China, whether an emperor or a general secretary, is afraid of a peasant revolution. They've got uh, shadow banking systems. They've got too many people living in the cities. And with all this party control, they run the risk of cutting off uh, entrepreneurial spirit. And they need you know, something like seven, eight, nine, 10 percent annual real growth just to keep lifting people out of poverty. Instead, we exaggerate China as this monolith. China is not a monolith. We worry about an invasion of Taiwan, which physically and militarily, the Chinese are incapable of doing. They have other options, by the way. They could have a blockade or they could have any kind of economic sanctions. But a military takeover is not correct. And indeed, if the threat was so imminent, why is the United States far more worried about a takeover of Taiwan militarily than the Taiwanese are? So we've got to be i think cooler and more objective and very very hesitant to call somebody an enemy and we have to be much smarter in terms of dealing with russian active measures chinese active measures and propaganda we're not i mean for example in this column i write about bush's about putin's essay uh why do uh, the leaders of the, of the west not say it's a very interesting issue our argument he writes historically very very interesting things he calls about he refers back to the many invasions of, of Russia, from the Swedes, the Germans, the Poles, uh, and the Mongols and the Taters, not to mention 1812 and uh, Hitler, but this is not 1812 or 1941. This is 2021. Nobody is going to invade uh, Russia. So wake up and come on. What you're saying here is historically nonsense. Let's sit down and see if we can come to some kind of agreement. We've got to be far more rational. We've got to treat people with respect, even though we may not like doing that this is going to be a huge revision of how we look at foreign policy at defense and national security and whether or not we're capable of doing it remains to be seen now is this the end of america of course not it just means that we're going to be having far bumpier rides and probably have more dangerous situations than we ought to but unfortunately in america today rationality along truth along with truth and fact are the first casualties and if you can't be truthful and you can't be factual It's very difficult to be rational, and this applies as much to foreign policy and national security as it does to domestic politics.
0: I want to take you uh, to the the future of warfare and the future of conflict, uh, in fact. We keep talking about fighting and winning, and Adam Smith, uh, the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, has been very thoughtful that we should be talking about constantly deterring. The problem is, for example, with, with both Russia, but particularly China, you, you thoughtfully mentioned the weaknesses the country have has, and, and those weaknesses are extreme. In, in fact, what happened in Cuba is why the Chinese would say, this is why you don't have an open internet, right? The, the trouble is no authoritarian state has managed to control its population indefinitely. They eventually fail, and this is where Brent Scowcroft was right, right? I mean, it's a matter of time. But the Soviet Union collapsed under the incompetent, you know, under the weight of its own incompetence. In the case of China, China potentially gets more dangerous as it gets destabilized with a whole broad array of factors. I believe the crackdowns are going to increase the instability over time. And that means we have to get our deterrent game up because the confluence of us of 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 China not being deterred and being unstable at home is what could cause a miscalculation that leads to war. How do we need to be fundamentally thinking about conflict? Because it looks like the nature of war is changing in some respects and how war will be fought. And we may already, you know, I think there's a, re- a recognition that we are at cyber war already. How do we need to think about conflict, war fighting, what it is, how it will be waged, because there is a concern that we're preparing for the war we want to fight as opposed to the conflict as it is emerging, or that we may already be embroiled in. I'll,
1: I'll make a couple of outrageous statements to start and then follow up. First, I think that the Clausewitzian bifurcation of war in terms of nature and character is misplaced. And I'll come back to that. I think we overemphasize that. Second, I don't think that the concept of deterrence really fits the modern age. And I'll explain that. Um, I think that the only thing that has changed the character and nature of warfare was nuclear and thermonuclear weapons. Because in that condition, there were no winners and there were no losers. It's the first time in history that could have happened. And so I think that we have to realize that what's now the next change in both the nature and character is that the non-kinetic aspects of what was considered to be conflict may be superseding in their ability to influence the kinetic aspects, and we have to deal with that. You talked about cyber, but active measures, disinformation, deep fakes, deception, all these kinds of things, the uses of non-military aspects of power are becoming, I think, even more important today, simply because the cost of war are too great. Now, deterrence, as you know, was originally defined in the context of nuclear weapons and nuclear Armageddon, and that if we had enough power in a second strike to destroy an adversary, nobody was going to strike first. That's all well and good. But I think deterrence is really hard pressed to be functional in the current age for a couple of reasons. We talk about deterring China, all right? We're not doing very well in deterring China, for example, from militarizing tiny islands. We're not doing very well in deterring China, for example, from using cyber to steal and to impose its... uh, espionage on us. We're not doing very well in preventing China from building up a stronger military. And we're not very good at deterring China from Belt Road initiatives. Similarly with Russia, active measures are not being deterred. Putin's inroads into Ukraine have not been deterred. And nor has the ability of, of Russia to use its influence been deterred. And so I think that we have to look at deterrence in an entirely different sense and restrain it back to the use of the Cold War that a major nuclear war must be deterred. But having said that, we need a new construct to deal with the modern, a more modern age when the non-kinetic aspects of uh, conflict are more important. And I think therefore the paradigm to do that is first to contain, to prevent, defend and engage. I'm not talking about deterring, I'm talking about containing bad things from happening, preventing them from happening, defending ourselves and then engaging with potential adversaries to see where we can reduce risks. It's an entirely new mindset. And unfortunately, as long as we keep on talking about deterring, we're going back to the days of mutual assured destruction, preventing nuclear war, which is obviously vital, but we cannot, in my mind, extend the notion of deterrence or the definition of deterrence to the current conflicts that we are seeing uh, that are using non-kinetic instruments of power.
0: So so how do we do that? How do we need to think about both strategy and capability development, right? Because we ultimately do not want to take any risk. Uh, as you're seeing with this budget, uh, this administration was saying, look, 2022, we're going to take a little bit of risk. 2023, we're going to take a lot, of, lot more risk. Uh, but almost all the things that we saw the department do, whether it's the retirement of aircraft or the retirement of ships, Members of Congress are opposing that and saying, uh, well, that's too risky. I think the Air Force Chief of Staff CQ Brown has it exactly right. I'd much rather take a little bit of risk today than take a lot of risk tomorrow to de-risk my future, given my adversaries are not going to fight the way we have assumed they're gonna fight, right? This is gonna be very different and we're gonna have to think our way through the problem uh, ultimately very differently. So from your standpoint, what do you need to do at the strategic level What do you need to be doing sort of at the operational and the capabilities level differently than we're doing now?
1: General Brown is absolutely right. I've argued for this for a long time. What we need is another solarium study that Dwight Eisenhower did in 1953, where he commissioned four different groups to look at different strategies. We need to have another solarium that takes a look at national security, beginning with various assumptions, and then comes up with some kind of a plan and a strategy that can be adopted. Second, um, we need, I think, to realize that we spend far too much money and waste far too much money on defense because we're not thinking our way through. Uh, The most interesting example of one of them is that NASA spent who knows how much, how many tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars for a pen that could write in space. The Soviets had a very simple, better answer, it was called a pencil. For example, there was a piece in the Post yesterday, Washington Post, that said that we're spending infinitely more money, I shouldn't say that, but four or five or 10 times more money on drones, per drone, than we could get from a Chinese source. Uh, I have argued in my column for tomorrow, called Rocket Men, which refers to not Kim Jong-un, but to Richard Branson, Jeff Bezos, and Elon Musk, that maybe we ought to think about privatizing as we have privatized space, something like DARPA, where we give DARPA over to some entrepreneurs for a price and they go about finding these technologies in which the government would have some kind of an equity position, so that if these things take off, we can make more money, but we can profit from the entrepreneurial ideas because right now, for a lot of reasons that go beyond the, the current Pentagon's fault, Uh, we have the worst case of procurement constipation that we can. Um, In 1995, if you were just joining the Navy or any of the services, that's when the planning for the USS Ford and the Zumwalt really began. 25 years later, you would be up for flag rank or retired, and yet the Ford and the Zumwalt have not become operational yet. And so this whole system is badly broken. There have been who knows how many investigations and examinations of the acquisition process, most of which would probably did more harm than good. But we have a system right now that's so ponderous and overlaid with bureaucracy that we have to break through it. So I think a symposium, a a Solarium project is essential, start now, much more than the QDR, the Quadrenal Defense Review or the Strategic Defense Review that's being done. This has gotta be far more basic and it's gotta be done by a smaller group because simply the QDR or the SDR is gonna be the lowest common denominator. And quite frankly, it's not gonna be very, very useful in setting priorities because it's gonna have so many priorities. And we have to look at really innovative means to use research and development. And so thinking about privatizing uh, DARPA with all the risks associated with that might not be a bad idea, very much as how the three rocket men are America's capability for space, simply because the government is no longer capable of doing it it is capable of supporting those projects with money. And that probably should be the role of the government rather than actually managing what's going on.
0: Um, I would uh, uh, somewhat disagree with you. I think DARPA does a great job queuing up and developing the technology and then they get commercialized or they go into the department. I think what we do is a bad job is taking that technology and actually making something of it. And that process is what is very sort of ad hoc. And, you know, if you went to a DARPA guy or gal, you know, they would have said, well, we did that like 10 years ago, but you know, it's been sitting here. So how do you sort of um, operationalize?
1: No, that's how I would privatize it. I would take those ideas and I would put them into action so that the new DARPA would be not just doing research and development, it would be taking these good ideas and put them in production. So it doesn't take 25 years from the start of a project, like for example, USS Ford or whatever, or future combat systems that end up getting canceled. That's what we have to do, and I think the only way we're gonna be able to do it is to have the private sector show some uh, ability to be far more innovative. After all, that's what we did with the aviation community. How many aviation manufacturers do we have in 1939, 1940, 42, 45, during World War II? More than you can well, count, probably.
0: Well. Uh, correct. And and consolidation uh, has has gone amok and, and, and we're paying the price for it. So who leads this change? Right. I mean, because the big concern, uh, Harlan, is uh, and, and I you know that the that the military leadership is having a challenge with this, that the political leadership is having a challenge with it. So how do we get so who leads this revolution out of the desert?
1: The president and the president has got to a point, as I said, a solarium project, getting a political people, a small group as Eisenhower did and said, OK, I want you to come up and I want to have these three or four different approaches and the way it's going to be done. I want to know what the assumptions are. I want to know the outcomes are and I want to know how do we get from here to there with the timetable and the affordability of all of these. And it's got to be broader than just defense. It's got to be national security writ large, which also encompasses the uh, domestic side. And unless we do something like that, as I said, the SDR, the Strategic Defense Review and the Quadrennial Defense Review uh, seems to me that they are just going to be a waste of time because we're going to come up with more of the same.
0: Um, and I want to uh, point out to the audience, I, I wrote a piece uh, calling on. Uh, uh, the Biden administration, or at the time, the you know whether it would be Trump too to have considered a salarium uh, approach in order to drive uh, some of these uh, changes. Let me take you to the question of extremism. Um, you know, there there is an increasing uh, recognition that we have met the enemy and the enemy is us. Um, we saw the events of January sixth, uh, um, the misinformation and disinformation. Now people. Um, saying that nothing at all happened on January 6th, right? I mean, the president's supporters maintain that what they saw was, was not real, right? So you're entering terra incognita, uh, and, and that some of these um, extremist views are perhaps a little more proliferated uh, and widespread than people thought, and now being fed by, obviously, political leaders who are interested in saving their own jobs, right? So people who know better voted to uh, decertify or, or voted against certifying an election based on a lie because they just wanted to keep their jobs, right? And we've seen that everybody who stood up to Trump loses their job as a, as a general rule. How do we need to think about extremism and, and fight in, um, given that, that actually I'll ranks as the leading national security, a, a leading national security danger, ultimately?
1: Uh, this is not new. This goes back to the American Revolution revolutionaries were extremists. Remember what the Declaration of Independence says, that when government becomes destructive, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it. But during World War I, we had huge amounts of riots, labor riots, women wanting to vote, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We passed the Espionage and Sedition Acts, and we arrested people who were seen to be extremists. In the 1920 election, Eugene V. Debs, who was running for vice president, was in jail. So this notion of extremism is not new. The way out of this is to my mind is is economic success. The more that we can reduce the disparities between rich and poor and between the so-called classes, the less grounds there are, there are gonna be for grievances. But this is gonna take a long time. And right now there is no, I repeat, no single solution or series of solutions simply because we have the issue of free speech. What marks the difference between free speech and radical speech, you know, yelling fire in a in a in a crowded theater, but some of the things that some of these people have said, members of Congress, uh, still are free speech. And with a country, a company that is, country that is so politicized and partisanized, um, coming to some simple solution soon is unlikely. So I think that Joe Biden is right. We've got to try and unify the country. That's going to take time. Uh, deep wounds do not heal instantly. And the way we do that is by the economic rejuvenation and over time, perhaps reconciliation between Republicans and Democrats. But at this side, at this time, the moderates in the center are outnumbered by the extremists both of left and right. And I think that this country is in very, very tough shape for a very, very long time to come. I hope I'm wrong. And perhaps one, uh, one bright light is that after the 1918, 1920 pandemic of Spanish flu, By 1922, the the country was on an economic rejuvenation rejuvenation, and the greatest economic boom in its history that became the Roaring Twenties. Now the Roaring Twenties didn't end so well, but having said that, my sense is that we could see an economic rejuvenation once we get through this pandemic, hopefully it'll be sooner than later. That depends of course on vaccinations and how the Delta variant turns out. But a strong economy lifts all boats, even though cutting taxes is not the best way to get there. And I think if you can do that, then perhaps you can reduce the hostility that really exists between people. One small anecdote, look at the amount of violence on aircraft, unheard of, unheard of. And yet today people are uh, showing air rage uh, simply because they're frustrated, uh, they are furious, they have got all sorts of issues to be offended by, and this is manifesting itself throughout too much of our society. I wish I had a better succinct answer, but I do not think, think one exists right now. At no, the I end, I would, Isn't no, this a I, bigger I, I, danger I, I,
0: than we've had b- ever in the past?
1: No, I don't. I, I, I have a different danger. The different danger I see is that checks and balances in our political system may no longer work. But in terms of what you're saying, remember McCarthyism. <clears throat> remember the 1940s and the Red Scares. Remember the 60s and Vietnam. I mean, the amount of of of, of protest and riots were extreme. Remember Chicago during the Republican, uh, during the Democratic Convention of 1968, or Watts or all these places which were explosive uh, because of the Vietnam. No, we've been there. I agree with you that technology now has broadened the stage because more people are engaged, but this is really nothing new. The big difference today is that the politicization of both political parties has been an extreme issue. And I don't, the constitution only works if one of three things is in play. First, there's a crisis such as Pearl Harbor that unifies the nation. Uh, September 11th was unable really to do that, and certainly the COVID epidemic was unable to do that. Second, one party controls with veto proof majorities, both ends of uh, Capitol Hill, uh, Pennsylvania Avenue, and the White House, and has a majority in the the Supreme Court. That's not gonna happen. And lastly, there's sufficient civility and compromise to get through these issues. Uh, None of those exist. and, And quite frankly, the notion of checks and balances to me no longer works. I think one of the problems is that the Senate, unless changes can be made, has outlived its sell by date. Uh, You have Republicans who have almost half the the equal number of 50 uh, seats uh, represent less than a third of the population. Now, obviously population was meant to be represented in the House of Representatives, but you've got Congress in in fundamental to gridlock. And unless you can fix that, uh, I don't see how this nation is gonna be able to resolve lots of these issues. Now, having said that, as the other Adam Smith, the great Scots histor- economist said after the Battle of Saratoga in, 19- in 1777, when one of his students said, Professor Smith we're ruined." there's a lot of ruin in a nation. And so I think that we have a lot of resilience, but uh, what's gonna happen, I think, is you're gonna see standards of living decline. You're gonna see the political system continue not to function properly. And I think that the sort of uh, Happiness index, if there's such a thing in the United States, is going to decline. Now, is this going to be a Soviet Union implodes? No. Is this going to be a country that's going to be overtaken by revolution? No, I don't think so. But it's a country that's not going to be able to live up to its potential. And that, unfortunately, is, in my mind, a tragedy and maybe the tragedy for future generations that we'll have to face.
0: Are we paying enough attention to climate and its national security implications? How do we need to be thinking about it?
1: No, we are not. That would be part of the solarium study. We have to take it much further. Uh, Just like people reject vaccines, people deny climate change. Go out to the West Coast, uh, go to Northern Europe. This is real and it's potentially existential and we better wake up. Um,
0: Let me uh, take you to um, education. After Vietnam, you went to the Fletcher School, you earned your PhD finishing in 20 months, uh, in part uh, in 1971, in part because the Navy wouldn't give you the three years you needed uh, in order uh, to do that. Uh, you've also a graduate of the Naval War College. Uh, no one said that education was lost on you, but there are people who in a 20 year career spend 10 of it in school and then, you know, go to, go to industry, uh, you know, and certainly don't move a needle with that education, uh, in, uh, in, in national security. And I would submit some of the greatest military leaders we had. We're not festooned with 21 uh, different uh, de- degrees. You were one of the driving forces of the Navy's Educating for Sea Power initiative to improve naval education. How do we need to think about military education and what does that ecosystem look like? Because you benefited from going actually outside the military education system. And David Petraeus and, and Jim Stavridis would tell you the same thing. Uh,
1: the Education for Sea Power study had many conclusions, it was unanimous. Mike Mullen was on it, John Allen was on it, Anne Rondo was on it, Barbara Barrett, Secretary of the Air Force was on it before she went to that position. This was commissioned by Tom Modley, then the Under Secretary of the Navy, and Bill Moran, who was the Vice Chief, and Gary Thomas, who was the ACMAC, who were co-chairs of this thing. We proposed that the, the US Navy was not making the most of the most important asset it has, the six inches between the ears of its sailors and officers. Um, going back to Officer uh, Ascension, whether it was the Naval Academy, OCS, or ROTC, through the war colleges, none of these were integrated. There was no coordination, no cooperation, and there was no mandate from the senior leadership as to what qualifications we wanted that people have at each stage of their education. In fact, the best study ever done on naval education was done by the captain, then Captain Ernie King in 1920 in the King-Pie Knox study, which went through this. Uh, We recommended a Naval University, which would be a collegial representation of all the Navy's institutions, including flag officer education and uh, civilian education at uh, civilian institutes under a Naval University that would be commanded by a three-star admiral or general, the Marines would have a shot at it, uh, who would also be co-president of the Naval War College. And the fundamental theme of education at every level was to improve the critical thinking of whether it was an E-1 sailor or an O-10 four-star admiral or general. Critical thinking became the thing that we really had to push and so we outlined this and for a lot of reasons, particularly a CNO who did not believe that uh, this was necessary, E-4S was lost at sea. We need to start that again. Uh, I have a lot of ideas about education in the civilian side but my specialty is really national security foreign policy and defense, so I'll just end with, we need a naval university, we need to integrate, and we need to make maximum use of the brain power of our sailors, Marines, airmen, so forth, because that is the best weapon we have.
0: Last question, uh, and I ask this of uh, all of our guests, uh, what is uh, a great example of good strategy worth emulating and bad strategy that should serve as a warning?
1: George Washington, the revolution, we won basically two battles, Yorktown, which was the most critical, and before that Saratoga. Washington knew that the Redcoats, the British, were engaged in a much larger war with France, and so if we could hang on, we'd win. That was asymmetric warfare. The North Vietnamese replicated that strategy, and they won despite the huge losses. Look at the cost exchange ratios. 58,000 Americans killed, millions of Vietnamese. Uh, For every airplane we lost, the other side lost eight or 10. Similarly, uh, the Afghan Mujahideen and the Taliban have adapted that strategy. Those are really excellent examples. And what we should be doing today is not having a force on force strategy, but an asymmetric strategy that focuses on the weaknesses of the other side, the ways to gain greatest leverage and to use the concept of shock and awe, that is to affect influence and control will and perception Because after all, as Clausewitz correctly said, war is a contest of wills. It's an extension of policy. Policy, not politics. Policy meaning strategy by other means. We have to focus on other means. That should permeate, in my mind, our educational system in the military, but more importantly, our strategy. We need to look for weaknesses. We must realize that as Churchill said during World War II, we've run out of money. We've got to think our way clear of danger. That's what we have to do today. $715 billion a year on defense is more than we can afford and I think more than we need to spend if we can focus focus on symmetries and ways of defeating the other side without necessarily fighting, affecting their will and perceptions. That to me is most important. We have the brain power to do it, but do we have a system and institution that will enable us to follow up along those lines? That's one of the biggest questions I have about the future.
0: And uh, what about negative, right? What's bad strategy worth avoiding?
1: Hmm. Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, even going into Grenada to save students that were not under any kind of risk, as the operational commander, Joe Metcalf, pointedly told the White House. And indeed, the so-called Russian air base that was being constructed was being built by the British firm Plessy because the British were out to increase tourism in Grenada. That's a very small example of how we lack understanding and knowledge, and went in because it was a convenient way to show that we were going to push the Russians around when indeed the Soviets had no real interest in Grenada. They already had a bigger aircraft carrier called Cuba. So I think if you take a look at the recent uses of U.S. force, you ask why have we won battles and lost wars? Those are examples of bad strategies.
0: And, and before we go, I just want to mention uh, one thing, because we've uh, discussed it before. Uh, you know, you're, you're mentioning shock and awe, but folks attribute you as the author of that uh, strategy, but actually misapply it in the way that it was used for the beginning uh, of uh, the uh, Iraq war. And I remember even at that time, you were saying that is not what the strategy is, uh, as, as it was uh, you know, being touted at the time. You know, you mentioned that there's a book on your shelf uh about uh, the, the military and how militaries actually don't want to confront big problems, right? One of the things that we, uh, you know, we've been talking about these big strategic challenges, but ultimately, you know, service chiefs focus on uniforms, right? Focus on, on the uh, ir- irrelevant. What's the tendency and, and what's your advice to service chiefs to try to help get this right, especially at a time when the irrelevant needs to be put aside and the focus really be on the things that move needles?
1: You've got to go back and take a look at the great service chiefs. In the case of the Navy, Arlie Burke, Bud Zumwalt who had his faults, but Jimmy Holloway who brought the Navy back, Tom Hayward, who got rid of drugs in the Navy. We've had a lot of really, really good CNOs and I don't think people follow their history well enough. The same thing applies to Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. you need to learn by example. And of course, in the military, being the executive assistant to a four-star uh, equivalent is a way that you learn by example. Unfortunately, sometimes that doesn't work if the four-star doesn't get it right. But I think looking back at this to see what the really great leaders, the chiefs of staff of the various services have done uh, is a way that people should emulate. And as Zumwalt said, it is far better to beg forgiveness than it is to request permission. We don't do that enough today, but maybe it's impossible in today's zero defect world for that to happen. But look at the past, what made, these, what made these leaders great and how can that be emulated and how can that to the degree that it can be taught. The book was on the psychology of military incompetence by Norman Dixon. And it goes back to look at all the battles of, uh, in the past that were the most interesting one is the Boer war when the British general managed to march his division backwards <laughs> into a Boer, Boer ambush. And it's called The Incompetence of Military Thinking uh, by a retired major. Um, But it's very, very interesting to look at bad battles. I have a a book after the the Fifth Horseman comes out called The Sixth Domain, which is the missing domain uh, and The New art of War, in which I argue that the five domains that the Pentagon uses in terms of expressing conflict, sea, air, land, space, and cyber are missing the most important one. That is the sixth domain, which is the six inches between our ears the intellectual where you have an intuition, uh, imagination, innovation, inquisitiveness, all are part of why battles are won. And the book goes into why are battles won and why are battles lost? We have to understand that. And it's not necessarily because one side is stronger or the traditional analysis, it often just comes down to personalities. For example, the battle of France was largely won not so much because of the Blitzkrieg, but because Guderian and Rommel actually took the lead in the point to break through French and Belgian lines, leading as if they were squad leaders. The Battle of Midway was largely won because Wade McCluskey defied Navy uh, operating concepts <clears throat> and doctrine and didn't follow the expanding square, found a Japanese destroyer, hightailing tailing it back to the Japanese main body and his squadron put uh, three bombs and took out three carriers. The fourth one was lost that day. So we need to take a look at what really makes a difference in winning battles. And I argue it's as much intellectual and that's what we have to focus on if we're going to have a successful military or a more successful military in the future.
0: Harlan, thanks very much. Honor and pleasure having you on the program. Uh, you're always welcome back on. Thanks so much for being so generous with your time. Uh, fascinating uh, discussion and look forward to uh, discussing both of the books when they come out. Thanks again.
1: My, My pleasure, Marco. And, and all the best to Houndini. <laughs> She's making her comments. No. <laughs>